Hope your hearts have been encouraged this morning to rejoice in our King. We have ample cause to do so, and that we can go to Him in prayer, and that we can place our trust in Him. Let's bow before Him now. Lord, we come this morning to your word, expectant, and we come before you in prayer, pouring out our hearts. We recognize there's many needs, many wearies, many hurts in this room this morning, and we come before you asking that you would teach us and instruct us in your ways, that we would see and delight in all of Christ. And that we would give you great glory as we seek to rejoice with thanksgiving for all that Christ has done, all that he is doing, and all that he will do. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. During the month of December, Pastor J.D. preached through a series on the good news of great joy that is celebrated at Christmas. Our hearts were challenged to delight in the source, the subject, and the sustainer of true joy. And we concluded by reflecting on the saints' experience of this joy, that what we prize, we will praise, and what we praise, we will proclaim But unlike Christmas Day, which has now come and gone, this joy for believers is meant to remain. Today we will continue our series through the letter of Philippians, which is all about joyfully serving Christ. In this final chapter, the Apostle Paul writes several instructions regarding joyful living amidst suffering. The primary command is provided with emphasis in chapter 4, starting in verse 4. If you look along with your Bibles, we'll read our passage in its entirety. And Paul starts by ordering believers, saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The central duty of Christian living is delighting in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice Not only does he repeat this command, but he actually stretches it over an inexhaustible time frame. He says, always. To some, this might seem idealistic. Surely Paul didn't mean always, all the time, in every circumstance, did he? Yes, he did. The truth is that servants of Christ must rejoice in the Lord always. 
And the Holy Spirit inspired this command. And he also graciously provides in this passage a repeated blessing for rejoicing as servants of Christ. Twice Paul points out that the result of this rejoicing in the Lord is peace. In verse 7, he stated, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, in verse 9, he says at the end, And the God of peace will be with you. Paul is saying that we are to rejoice in the Lord always, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul is not speaking here of peace with God, but rather the peace of God. The peace that believers experience in their daily walk with Christ. This peace of God is held up in this text as the primary motivation for suffering saints as they pursue a lifetime of rejoicing in the Lord. And rightfully so. How often do you desire peace it's in our nature to long for a satisfying and full rest, to be calm. Even family sitcoms will depict the chaotic moment in the home where a parent will yell out, can we just get a little peace and quiet? We especially long for peace amidst the trials of life. We feel the pressure of difficult circumstances and a longing for relief. We search high and low for peace, but we're tempted to settle for the world's counterfeit, a poor substitute for God's peace that we desperately desire, a peace that only comes from God himself, a peace that God himself possesses, a peace that provides inward tranquility and calm even amidst the storms of life. I want you to think about the most difficult trial in your life right now. An issue that seems insurmountable and overwhelming to you. Are you desperate enough for true peace that you will submit to God's instructions for peace today? Because God calls you to pursue peace in this way by rejoicing in the Lord always. Because rejoicing brings peace. But for us, that might seem a little backwards, doesn't it? Normally, we long for peace so that we can finally feel happy. But Scripture instructs us that rejoicing in the Lord results in resting in the peace of God. Rejoicing brings peace. And since God's peace comes to those who rejoice in the Lord, we ought to ask this question as we walk through this text together. What does it look like to rejoice in the Lord always? Rejoicing in the Lord is not plastering a smile on your face and pretending like everything's just peachy keen. It's not a sort of stoic rejection of feelings that denies the difficult realities that we engage with every day. As we've seen in our series this Christmas, rejoicing in the Lord is an overflow of delight in admiring and marveling at who God is, and what God has done. It's the response of a new heart that sees the never-ending love of God through Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't stop here to give a formal definition. He actually moves through the following verses to give us a depiction of what it looks like to rejoice in the Lord always. 
What does it look like to always rejoice in the Lord practically in our everyday life? Well, Paul actually provides four practical instructions for servants of Christ to understand the command to rejoice in the Lord always. And the first principle is found in verse five. Look with me again. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The first practical instruction for rejoicing in the Lord is this. Be reasonable with everyone. This instruction would have pierced the hearts of the original audience in light of the preceding verses. Paul just called these believers to stand firm in the Lord by addressing conflict within the church. There was a long-standing conflict between two women in the church, and he called them to agree in the Lord and even for fellow believers to help them pursue that peace. Then Paul intentionally returns to this repeated theme of joy because he knows rejoicing brings peace. And the first practical example is that rejoicing the Lord always actually looks like possessing a reputation of reasonableness, not just with our fellow believers, but with all people. When your heart is delighting in the Lord, there is no room for detesting or despising and disdaining others. When you are filled with joy in the Lord, you don't cling to your rights and become defensive. You lay down your rights, just as Christ did. You don't operate under your own personal insecurities, but you found rest in your king. The humble obedience of Christ, scripture records, was done for the joy that was set before him. He endured injustice. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Likewise, we as Christians are instructed to have a reputation of reasonableness, to be peaceable, to be patient listeners who are actually more eager to rightly understand others rather than being understood by others. Have you ever thought to yourself, you know, that person is so grumpy and contentious and quarrelsome, I bet they are just constantly rejoicing in the Lord. No. But when someone is reasonable, when they're receptive to correction, when they're peaceable in conversation, when kindness flows from their lips, it's evident that there's an abiding joy in Christ. When a Christian is rejoicing in the Lord, there is such a palpable peace that it's evident to all. Because rejoicing brings peace in the life of a believer. So how are you doing with rejoicing in the Lord always? Are you someone who is characterized by reasonableness to everyone? For some, this seems contradictory to their way of life. But let me encourage you, you're not just stuck and you don't have this unique personality quirk. You actually have a great need for growing and rejoicing in the Lord. And as you repent and return to rejoicing, you will experience peace that will overflow in your relationship with others. For others in the room, this may seem more natural. As you listen, you think, I'm pretty easygoing with most people. I really only struggle with a few, here and there. As long as we agree theologically, and we agree politically, and we make the same parenting decisions, 
and make decisions about money and music preferences and sports teams and everything else. I mean, we really get along just fine. Let me encourage you to look again at the text. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The peace that comes from God in rejoicing in him is non-discriminatory. This abiding divine peace speaks the truth in love. It always seeks the God-glorifying good of others, and it never insists on its own way. But rather, it seeks patiently to encourage others in God's way. Not only does rejoicing the Lord show up publicly in our relationships with others, but it will also be manifested in our private responses to difficulty. Our second practical instruction for rejoicing the Lord is found starting at the end of verse 5 through 7. He says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The second practical instruction for rejoicing in the Lord always is this. We are to reject all anxiety by praying to God. We are to be anxious for nothing, this says, but to pray in everything. The absolute prohibition of this is actually the third of its kind found in the letter of Philippians. Philippians 2.3, Paul wrote, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In chapter 2.14, he said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And here in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. Paul begins by reminding these fellow citizens of heaven that their powerful Lord's return is imminent. And this confidence in their Lord's return is actually inconsistent with any fearful worry of the future. Apprehension and fear are actually the marks of the unbelieving, not those of faith. This anxiousness that is to be abolished is a consuming care that disregards God. It's self-sufficient caring that neglects our all-sufficient God. One commentator wisely assessed anxiety By writing, to care is a virtue, but to foster cares is sin. For such anxiety is not trust in God, but trusting in oneself. Christians are not called to be uncaring people. We are called to care compassionately, but we do so with confidence in our all-caring God. Paul would write of his own deep concern for all the churches Paul was intensely concerned about the Lord's work and the Lord's people, and we should be too. We should care about the status of our fellow believers' souls. Are they discouraged? Are they distracted and distant from Christ? We should care about the health and mission of our church, that we would maintain unity in Christ and hold fast to his trustworthy word, that we would each walk worthy of his gospel and shine bright among a dark and lost world. But this also means we should care for the things that Christ's mission and Christ's people engage in. We should care about the state of our nation before God. We should care about the eternal peril 
that awaits the lost people, our neighbors in this city. We should care about our children's future. Not that they live in a perfect world, but that they stand firm in Christ amidst promised persecution that will come. We should care for our aging parents and fellow saints, that they finish strong, fighting temptation to being served by delighting to be poured out as a drink offering in the lives of others. There is so much we should care about. But although Christians should care, we are not called to carry the load. To do so only breeds this sort of inward turmoil and fear and worry. So maybe you're listening now and thinking, okay, it's a sin to care too much, but it's a sin not to care at all. So you rehearse all these cares and you kind of load me up and I'm starting to feel a little anxious again, right? Our vision and our hearts start to be swallowed up with these concerns. Are we left to flounder in this tenuous state? No. Look at verse six and see God's gracious instruction for the worried heart. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our society deems anxiety as a physical disease. But scripture's diagnosis is that it is first and foremost a spiritual sickness of the heart. And its primary cure is prayer. When we feel fearful and anxious, our minds are demanding an action. We need to do something, and scripture says, pray. Although this solution seems simple, it takes a lifetime to master But to those who have tasted God's peace through prayer, we delight in this truth. We run to our Lord in prayer more frequently and faster than before with each temptation to worry. And it's because this sort of rejoicing through prayer brings divine peace. This antidote for anxiety is affirmed throughout the pages of Scripture. The Psalms model this profusely. As you read through Psalm 55, as an example, you hear the cries of deep anguish over personal betrayal of a dear friend. And then this troubled soul declares in verse 16, but I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. This song concludes with the instructive truth. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. The apostle Peter would likewise encourage the persecuted elect exiles toward the end of his first epistle. He would say, cast all your anxieties on God, because he cares for you. Rejoicing servants of Christ, reject anxiety by praying to our all-caring God. And they do this continually in everything, our text says. Paul would similarly instruct the neighboring church in Thessalonica with a sort of rapid-fire succession of commands in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, 
For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Saints, we go through difficult times and we need to be equipped with God's word. And I want you to see the beauty of this sort of triple threat weapon that God has given to his children. This trifecta renders the enemy's attacks at us utterly useless. And this is the trifecta, rejoicing, praying, and thanksgiving. Paul weaves these together in our text as well to equip suffering saints to stand firm. Paul knew the necessity of this triad in the believer's fight for joyfully serving Christ. And he knew the lies that were launched like fiery darts at the hearts and minds of Christians. It's no accident that Paul's three prohibitions actually pair perfectly with these three weapons. What is it that distracts us from rejoicing in the Lord? Selfish ambition and conceit. So he says, do nothing from pride and self-serving motives. Instead, rejoice in the Lord always. What is it that prevents us from always giving thanks to God? It's grumbling and complaining. So do all things, he says, without grumbling and disputing. Instead, give thanks to God always. And what is it that stops us from praying in all circumstances? It's being anxiously consumed by all of our cares. So don't be anxious about anything, he says. But in everything, let your requests be made known to our God. The blessing that comes in the life of a believer is the very peace of God himself. The perfect peace possessed only by the sovereign creator of the entire universe is placed in you. A divine peace that is incomprehensible and also it is invincible. It's as if peace was a Roman Praetorian soldier tethered to you 24-7, wielding his sword to fend off every rising fear in your life. It's in our anxiety that we become most desperate for peace. In the stresses of parenting, in the unending tower of undone tasks, in the loss of loved ones, in the loss of health, when there's friction in broken relationships, when there's fear of the unknown, and in each of these, we're tempted to rehearse the situation over and over again in our minds, searching for relief in this world. But the solutions we come up with don't work. In unbearable frustration, the world offers you peace through outbursts of anger. But that's not God's peace. Scripture says the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. In an impossible marriage, the world offers you peace through divorce. But that's not God's peace. God hates divorce. When consumed with insurmountable doubts and sorrows and shame, the world offers you peace through suicide. But that's not God's peace. God is the creator of life. Only he gives and takes away. And if you're a believer, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify your father in heaven. The world only offers counterfeit peace. One that is contrary to God's written word. 
and your flesh tempts you with shortcuts that are void of three things. They're void of rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving to God. The song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, hammers home God's gracious solution for the troubled soul. The author writes, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Do you rejoice in the Lord through prayer? Or do you choose the path of anxiety? Many know this truth and seek to walk in it, and let me encourage you, keep it up. This is part of the fight as a believer. Don't believe the lies that prayer is trite or this sort of last resort option. Don't fall prey to self-reliance or self-pity. Rather, wage war against your anxiety through prayer. Shout back, as the psalmist does, to a worried heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. And petition God to work out his perfect will through your trial. And you will find that despite tragedy, trial, and temptation, that our God is triumphant. And he will guard both your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus with his perfect peace. Rejoice in the Lord and he will give you true peace. Peace that will sustain and strengthen and satisfy your longing heart even through the difficult trials of life. Having instructed how rejoicing servants of Christ are to respond to other people and even respond to their own worries, Paul proceeds to give a third practical instruction for rejoicing in the Lord always in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The third practical instruction is that we are to think always on things that glorify God. Having addressed anxiety specifically, Paul broadens his scope of application. Not only should we be rejoicing in the Lord uh, always in a way that actually impacts our worrisome thoughts, but it should impact all of thinking. There's a new filter, a new lens with which we even evaluate our thoughts. Paul unloads a sampling of virtuous characteristics that are ultimately sourced in God himself. And he calls believers to always direct their thoughts towards these types of things. Things that reflect the excellence and praiseworthiness of God. Although thoughts of our Lord Jesus Christ supremely qualify, Paul's aim here is not that narrow. This command is in the plural. Paul says, think on these things, not this thing. And that tells us there's a wider range in Paul's mind as he writes. Paul calls believers to see God's glory reflected throughout his creation and woven into his ordained plan. A heart that is rejoicing always ponders and correlates all of life towards their greatest delight. 
One of the supreme joys of my life is being married to my wife, Brady. As of this last Friday, we've been officially married for 12 years. And I can still remember, yay, I'm very grateful. (laughs) I'm very grateful. I can still remember the way my mind would effortly race towards her when we were dating. Everything pink was her favorite color. Immediately, boom. What does Brady think about this? Is this the shade of pink she likes? I wonder if she'd like it. Should I buy it for her? Everything, right? She played sports, so any sports banner, any activity, any, anything athletic, it's just like, oh, I'm thinking about Brady. She liked art. I wanted to marry her, so working at Burger King, I didn't enjoy scrubbing out the bottom of trash cans and cleaning lots of dishes, but I was laboring because I loved Brady, and I wanted to earn money and pay for a ring and propose. And as an act of faith in God and grace to me, she committed herself to be my wife till death do we part. And overjoyed by this gift, my mind still races toward her today. Every time I see our wedding colors, every time I drive by a coffee shop she likes, every time I see a restaurant where we enjoyed and shared memories together, a smile will come on my face. Friends, true rejoicing always directs our thoughts. And as we rejoice in the Lord always, our thoughts will be filled with the glories of Christ reflected throughout his creation. Are your thoughts filled with glimmers of God's glory throughout all of life? Or are you distracted with lesser things? Like a pilot spiraling without his navigation system, so is the Christians whose thoughts contain no reference to their glorious creator. No peace is found in a critical spirit that's fixated on every imperfection they find. You try to fix one thing, but you find another, and then another, and then it's never quite good enough, and you're always discouraged, and you're frustrated with others who don't do their part, and you're frustrated with God and even yourself, because you're not a good enough God. But for a rejoicing servant of Christ... There is immeasurable peace that comes from seeing God's glory shining throughout all his deeds. We can see excellence in a sports team and good sportsmanship. We can find it honorable when a mother refuses to abort the life in her womb. We observe the punishment of the guilty as just and the kindness of a stranger as commendable. But God's handiwork is not only evident in positive outcomes, it's even seen in life's sorrows. This is evident in the life of Job supremely. In a single day, Job's numerous livestock and servants were either stolen or killed, and he found that all his children had died in that day. Amidst these immeasurable losses and sorrows, Job cries out, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Humble rejoicing is necessary and appropriate, even in loss, because rejoicing in the Lord brings peace. At a funeral, we see the goodness of God in the comfort of the grieving. When we confess our sin against our fellow believer, we feel this weight of guilt and shame and we hate it, but we see the grace of God 
when they forgive us fully and freely. The one who is rejoicing in the Lord thinks on these types of things. And they experience God's peace, guarding their minds and their hearts. Paul's final principle flows from our thinking to our living. The fourth practical instruction for us that we find in verse 9, read along with me. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The fourth practical instruction for rejoicing in the Lord is this, practice living by godly examples. Right thinking is always meant to lead to right living. This instruction is central to Paul's purpose for writing this entire letter. Philippians 1.27, he asserted, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. At the end of chapter three, Paul called these beloved saints to imitate godly examples, not to walk as enemies of the cross, but to walk as citizens of heaven. And in wrapping up his letter now, he reiterates the purpose of everything he has ever taught them is this, to instruct them in joyfully living for Christ, to teach them and show them what it means to be a joyful servant of Christ. Upon hearing these words, the original audience would have recounted their cherished memories of the beloved apostle, how he had modeled for them rejoicing always, even amidst suffering. Acts 16 records Paul's second missionary journey when the church at Philippi was first planted. It tells of the crowds in Philippi becoming enraged with Paul and Silas's gospel ministry. They beat them, it says, with rods And after many blows, they were then thrown into the inner prison in chains. And scripture records what would have been a familiar memory to this Philippian church. That night there were, that they were imprisoned, rather, there was a myriad of miracles that occurred. The earth quaked, the foundation of the prison shook, and their shackles fell off. And the Philippian jailer got saved. But the first miracle was that two servants of Christ were rejoicing in the Lord amidst persecution. Acts 16.25 says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This rejoicing in suffering, Paul is saying, it's real. And we are to practice it, knowing that the God of peace will be with us, because rejoicing brings peace. Living a life of rejoicing the Lord always is impossible apart from God's grace. But as we rejoice by faith, he brings peace. God himself abides with us and strengthens us through every trial of life. Rejoicing the Lord is not some sort of mere sentiment. It is a delighting confidence that pours out in a lifestyle of praise to God. Are you practicing rejoicing in the Lord in your life? Do you look for and engage with godly examples to follow? There is effort commanded in this text for us believers. And peace is promised for us as well. Pursue practicing these things. 
Are you searching for peace in your trial this morning? Following a list of instructions can seem very appealing. I need to be more reasonable, I need to pray more, and I need to think right so that I live right. The problem is that these are simply applications of the primary command, to rejoice in the Lord always. This is rather the heart's response to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. Following a list of instructions without a heart of joy in Christ is impossible. It's like a new toy at Christmas that says, batteries not included, brings sadness to a child, realizing this toy doesn't work. Likewise, pursuing these actions without a heart of rejoicing in Christ, it will leave you disappointed. What you need, rather, is to be given a new heart through faith in Jesus Christ. You must confess your sins against God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came, the one who lived a perfect life and died a death in your place. He rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what he has provided and offers to you is payment for all your sins and eternal life with him forever. He offers joy and peace if you will turn from your sin and trust in him. And by trusting in Christ's finished work, your heart begins to rejoice. And it is a delight to follow his good and gracious promises that we find in his word. Believers, don't grow weary in well-doing. Don't try to operate this toy on manual power. It is only grace-powered, and his grace is all-sufficient for you. We must return again and again to the good news of the gospel as fuel for continual rejoicing. Just as the lame man recorded in Scripture how he responded when he was physically healed by the power of Jesus, so we ought to respond to the spiritual healing that Christ has given us. Scripture says that the lame man leaped for joy. Do you think that that lame man ever forgot that he could walk again? Do you think five, 10, 25 years down the road, he's inching himself off the bed with just his arm strength and asking his friends to take him back to the spot where he had to beg? Because he couldn't work. Absolutely not. My guess is that he woke up every morning, leaping from his bed, praying, thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace in my life. Christian, Jesus has taken from you a heart of stone that rightly can condemn you to hell. And he's given you a heart of flesh. And do you know what a heart of flesh does It rejoices in the Lord always. And it experiences the peace of their great God because rejoicing brings peace. May the Lord provide joy in our hearts that overflows into every area of our life, in our relationships, in our prayers, in our thinking, and in our living. And may we experience this gracious promise of God's peace through the trials of life, as we rejoice in the Lord continually. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. 
Your word gives us instructions on what it looks like to live for you. And Lord, we know that we are insufficient in ourselves for these things, and so we cry out. We ask that your spirit would be at work to cultivate in us a great urgency and yearning for your joy, your peace, that can only be brought about by your spirit. We trust your word that it's true, and we ask, Lord, for faith to walk it out in everyday life. Give us strength to live reasonably amongst one another, and in this world, a world that desires to persecute us, to oppose our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask God that there would be an abiding peace in our lives that overflows in our relationships, and that helps us when we are attacked with anxieties, when we're tempted to cling to our cares on our own. I pray for our church body that we would encourage and exhort one another in the truth of your word, that we would be familiar with the tools you've given us of rejoicing and praying and thanksgiving to you. You are a great God and worthy of all praise. And we ask God that our lives would be cultivated and grown in knowing and believing and delighting in these truths. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.